A procedure for certain abdominal cancers is proving to be successful in giving patients both quantity and quality of life back. There are, however, few centers in the U.S. that have a vast amount of experience, and Frederick Medical College is one of those institutions. On today's show, learn about the procedure known as HIPEC. We'll also hear from someone in our community who was diagnosed with a stage 4 abdominal cancer and was treated with HIPEC. I was afraid and anxious. I wanted to get this HIPEC surgery done. And later, we'll focus our CTSI on clinical trials and learn how they're carefully reviewed to assure the safety and protection of their participants. Understand that there is this independent board that is looking at the ethics of the research to make sure that people are protected. That's all coming up inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighters Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. In the past, patients diagnosed with a stage 4 or advanced form of many abdominal cancers had virtually no treatment options available, only chemotherapy treatments that were mostly ineffective and comfort measures. However, the last decade brought about the emergence of an option known as HIPEC, proving to be highly effective in successfully treating several types of abdominal cancers. Dr. Harvish Mogul is an oncology surgeon, assistant professor of surgery, and program director for regional therapies at Freitert and the Medical College of Wisconsin. We chatted with Dr. Mogul recently to discover what HIPEC is and what makes it so powerful in battling abdominal cancers. First, we learn that HIPEC is an acronym, which stands for... It stands for Heated Intraperitoneal Chemotherapy. So it's a form of treatment we use surgically to treat patients with cancer of the abdomen that is spread to the lining of the abdomen or the peritoneum. As far as the specific types of cancers it's used to treat... HIPEC is used to treat a lot of different cancers that arise within the abdomen. The most common appendix cancer, colon cancer, ovarian cancer, stomach cancer, or gastric cancer, mesothelioma, and then there are other rare cancers that we do use HIPEC for. What determines whether a patient is a good candidate for successful HIPEC treatment? Firstly, they have to have medical problems that are not going to cause a problem with their ability to tolerate an operation. Secondly, they should be not extremely weak because that would potentially mean that they would not do very well with surgery. And Dr. Mogul says there are other important considerations in determining the patient's eligibility. We have to 
to consider what the exact tumor that we're treating with HIPEC is and whether the HIPEC and surgical treatment in general is going to give the patient any long-term meaningful benefit. For cancers that tend to be more aggressive, we'd make sure that patients respond to conventional chemotherapy before we make a decision on whether they're good candidates for the surgery. So is HIPEC used only in treating advanced or late-stage cancer, or can it be used as a treatment in early stages as well? When patients have peritoneal disease, which is when cancer has spread to the lining of the abdomen, it's considered a stage 4 cancer. And it is this form of cancer that HIPEC is used to treat. HIPEC has been used for patients in whom there is extremely high risk of developing stage 4 peritoneal cancer. But in very early cancers, we don't tend to use HIPEC. Dr. Mogul says it's important to know that determining the stage of an abdominal cancer can be very different from other forms of cancer. In fact, staging can also vary greatly between different abdominal cancers. Every stage 4 abdominal cancer is not the same. For example, Stage 4 pancreatic cancer is extremely different from stage 4 appendix cancer. And that's why even though by definition peritoneal cancers are stage 4, the implications for treatment and prognosis differ very significantly between the type of cancers. Hence, HIPEC in some cancers, no HIPEC in other cancers. How long has HIPEC been available? This was initially devised in the 90s, but has gained more popularity because 20 years ago when patients had stage for appendix cancer. Unfortunately, we had no surgical therapies, including HIPEC. All we could offer patients were chemotherapies, which were not very effective or simply comfort measures. Next, we learn that HIPEC is actually a two-step process, combining both a surgical procedure followed by a chemotherapy treatment. Dr. Mogul explains. The first stage is called cytoreductive surgery. This stage involves me going inside of the abdomen and I attempt to remove every bit of visible disease. And one I'm able to surgically remove all the disease to the point where I can't see any obvious visible disease, then the abdomen is treated with the HIPEC. Which is the second of the two-step process. Again, HIPEC stands for heated intraperitoneal chemotherapy. Dr. Mogul describes this stage of treatment. During this part, we put special catheters or tubes within the abdomen and connect them to a pump and that pump circulates and heats uh, chemotherapy. And the hope is the chemotherapy will take care of any of the cancer cells that I wasn't able to see. What's the significance of heating the chemotherapy solution? So the heat serves two functions. One is heat in itself is toxic to cancer cells. And two, it potentiates the action of the chemotherapy because it helps the chemotherapy better penetrate and better act on the cancer cells. The dose of chemotherapy solution in HIPEC is unusually high. Dr. Mogul explains how and why this is possible. Some cancers can be considered regionally distributed, which means they're present only in the abdomen and nowhere else. So we can take advantage of the fact that there is a natural barrier that exists between the lining of the abdomen and the blood, and we can achieve extremely high concentrations of chemo by letting it sit only inside of the abdomen, and that helps us tackle cancers which are confined to the abdominal cavity. So we can 
can achieve significantly higher concentrations, sometimes 20 to 100 times more than what you would be able to tolerate in your IVs. In total, how long do the combined steps of HIPEC typically take? The cider reduction itself can take anywhere from four up to even 10 hours. Certainly there have been times when we have operated for 12 hours on patients. And the chemo part itself takes two hours. So in effect, the operation can last anywhere from six to 12 to 14 hours. And while it's not common, a patient can undergo additional treatments of the HIPEC chemotherapy solution. In some kinds of cancers, there are patients in whom we do have the opportunity to repeat HIPEC treatment if their disease comes back, but most patients tend to have one of these operations. Is HIPEC a standalone cancer treatment, or can it be used in combination with other traditional chemotherapy treatments? HIPEC many a times is used in combination with other treatments. There are some types of cancers that require both, and some patients do not require any form of IV chemotherapy. As far as the recovery process, Dr. Mogul says it can be extensive to put it mildly. This operation has been nicknamed the mother of all operations. The recovery process can be fairly long and fairly difficult for some patients. Hence, we're very careful to select patients that can tolerate the operation with minimal side effects. So there is a long road to recovery and many times patients take about three months till they actually can achieve their same functional level as before surgery. With an ever-increasing focus on precision medicine, does Dr. Mogul characterize HIPEC as individualized medicine tailored to the specific needs of a patient? It certainly is an individualized treatment because not every patient is a candidate. We have to look at multiple factors that are not only patient-related but also cancer-related before we make a decision to treat. In recent years, we have started to discover markers of different types of tumors that can somewhat prognosticate which patients will benefit from treatments versus which patients will not. How commonly is HIPEC used in cancer treatment today? For some types of cancer, it's a fairly accepted standard of care treatment. The other types of cancer, whether HIPEC can be used or not, really depends on the individual patient and what type of cancer they have. But in general, it is being done with increasing frequency all across the country. But while HIPEC is becoming increasingly utilized, Dr. Mogul tells us that there are, however, few centers in the U.S. that are considered high volume centers for HIPEC, which means these operations are done very frequently and have a vast amount of experience. And Frederick Medical College is one of those institutions. We have, since our program opened in 2009, done more than 350 HIPEC procedures. So with the availability of HIPEC today, how has life expectancy improved for cancer patients receiving this treatment? How long patients live cancer-free from this operation depends on the type of cancer we're treating and the patient's disease burden at the time of their initial HIPEC surgery. For example, there are some appendix cancer patients doing well 10 to 15 years after their initial HIPEC operation. So we have achieved some fairly long-term outcomes. And in addition to extending the quantity of life, HIPEC gives patients back their quality of life as well. If HIPEC is the right kind of treatment for them,
them, we can get some very good long-term outcomes in terms of their ability to stay cancer-free or to minimize the amount of cancer that they have, but also their quality of life. In a moment, we'll hear from one of Dr. Mogul's patients and discover how she's regaining her quality of life following HIPEC surgery. But first, while the treatment is successful, can HIPEC be considered a cure for abdominal cancers? We're always wary of using the term cure. There are a few patients who don't see their cancers come back, even more than 10 years out from their initial treatment. And in those patients, one can be tempted to use the term cure. But by and large, we talk about patients being cancer-free rather than completely cured. Of course, while there's been success with HIPEC, there's risk as well. Absolutely. Any treatment that we give patients in medicine is always a matter of weighing the benefits of the treatment versus the risks. So the risks typically after this operation are the risks that anyone runs from a major abdominal operation. In a chemotherapy part of the procedure also adds to the risk. Still, the benefits of HIPEC far outweigh the risks, making the procedure widely accepted throughout the medical community. Because of the data we have and the outcomes that HIPEC has produced, most centers, even if they do not perform HIPEC, which is a majority of the centers in the U.S., are absolutely supportive of HIPEC therapy. And he's proud to work at a medical center and in collaboration with other medical centers committed to advancing HIPEC. At MCW and Freighter, we have a vast volume of experience and we're always engaging in collaborative endeavors with other higher volume HIPEC centers to improve the outcomes that we can provide our patients. Finally, Dr. Mogul shares a special way he and his team celebrate the success and growth of HIPEC. Every year we do a patient-centered event called the Power of HIPEC and we invite patients that have been treated as well as patients awaiting treatment. It's a really good way to increase awareness and to also provide patients with hands-on resources. If you want to learn more about HIPEC, we'll be sure to post links to resources on our CTSI website along with the podcast of this show. Now that we have a better understanding of what HIPEC is, let's focus our CTSI on someone else who has firsthand experience with it from the patient's perspective. Meet Tracy. Tracy knows exactly how serious and scary having a stage four abdominal cancer can be because she had one. But she also knows how positively and dramatically HIPEC is in treating stage four abdominal cancers because she's had that as well. Now she shares her story with us. By all accounts, Tracy's life was pretty much like yours or mine, which is to say, it was pretty normal. I have a 10-year-old son that kept me pretty busy, and I have a loving husband that also kept me busy. I work as an x-ray tech for about 15 years, and I was just going out with friends and family and having a normal life. Along the way, she says she did have some relatively normal health issues. I had gastrointestinal issues, and I had a lot of female issues, but after a while, those were being taken care of, so... That got better, and then I started living life again. Still, her overall quality of life was... It was good. I was still having fun, hanging out with friends, being with my son every day, just a normal life. Which made her outlook on life... Simple, just to have a life and have fun and be with my family and friends. I love family. Then, one day, Tracy became aware that something was very suddenly affecting her health. It happened really quick. 
I woke up one morning and I was getting ready for work and I got a sharp pain in my right lower abdominal area. Having dealt with some abdominal issues in the past, she thought she might know what was happening. I used to get ovarian cysts that hemorrhaged and I thought, oh, that's all it was, but it was getting worse and worse. And my husband eventually took me to the ER. I had ultrasound CAT scan. But as it turned out, Tracy showed symptoms of something far more serious than she imagined. And it didn't take long to receive a diagnosis that would radically change the normal life she'd been living up to the day when she had that sharp pain. That was in February, and I ended up having a hysterectomy and appendectomy on March 6th. And then on March 13th, I got the phone call that I had appendix cancer. That spread to my ovaries, fallopian tube, uterus, and part of my colon. Tracy's world was rocked. What went through her mind when she first heard her diagnosis? Well, I totally started crying, which I think is normal. And I just thought, I'm going to die and leave my family behind. The sting of that news is still fresh to this day. I was scared out of my mind. I mean, it's just that simple, really. I think anybody that's diagnosed with cancer is going to be scared. I could start crying right now. I mean, I remember that day clearly. And I was so happy my son was at school, so he didn't have to see me like that. And understandably, her fear led to her thinking the worst. Oh yeah, I just thought I was gonna die. Never heard of this kind of cancer. Is there anything out there that's gonna be able to help me? As Tracy said, she never heard of appendiceal cancer. We asked Dr. Harvish Mogul, who would ever think you could get cancer in this vestigial or functionless organ? Good question. Unfortunately, we don't know why some patients do develop cancer of the appendix, but they do. As you rightly said, the appendix is a vestigial organ until the cells in the appendix become abnormal and form cancer. And many a times when the cancer does form, patients are relatively asymptomatic. And so they don't know that their appendix has a tumor because they have no symptoms. And patients present months to years later with disease that has already spread to the lining of the abdomen. Few patients, however, do have symptoms. And they're the lucky ones in whom we can catch those tumors and remove them before they have widespread or advanced cancer in the perineum. Despite initially fearing that her diagnosis could be a death sentence, Tracy learned that there were effective treatment options available. And that's when she was told that she was a strong candidate for HIPEC. They told me it was a cytoreductive surgery where they removed part of my colon and other parts. And then they run through heated chemo and it gets all over inside your abdominal cavity. Was she confident that HIPEC would be a life-saving treatment for her appendix cancer? I have to say going in, I didn't feel very confident, but leaving that appointment, I felt very confident. I could just tell they knew what they were talking about. Not a lot of doctors treat appendix cancer, so I was very confident in Dr. Mogul. Now you might recall that Dr. Mogul told us sometimes other treatments are used along with HIPEC. HIPEC many a times is used in combination with other treatments, either before or after HIPEC surgery. Such was the case for Tracy. When I went to go see Dr. Mogul and Dr. Ben George at Fragert, they recommended that I have chemotherapy first for six months and then do the high pack. And they said that it would be a much better outcome to get rid of any residual cancer. Tracy was on board, but was she concerned about any risks? Funny that you asked that because honestly, I wasn't afraid of the risks of the surgery itself. I just wanted to get it done. 
I wanted the cancer gone. First, she had to go through traditional chemotherapy. So for six months, she anxiously awaited her HIPEX surgery. I was afraid and anxious, but I wanted that day to come. I wanted to get this HIPEX surgery done. Finally, her wait was over and she had the HIPEX surgery. I want to say it was a nine hour surgery. Immediately after the procedure, Tracy says she didn't feel too bad. I really didn't have a lot of abdominal pain because I had an epidural, so that helped out for the first four days that I was in the hospital. But remember what Dr. Mogul said about the HIPEX surgery recovery? This operation has been nicknamed by many patients as the mother of all operations. Tracy can vouch for that because after her epidural was removed... It was definitely painful. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was painful. I mean, I have uh, incision from my breastbone down to my pelvis area, and it was very hard to get a leg out of bed. Just going to sit on a chair was hard. It took a while. And now, a while has passed. Today, a full year after her high pec surgery, Tracy's life is... Well, to hear her tell it. Actually, it's awesome. I'm enjoying life. I know this might sound strange, but I look at my son like all the time and I'm just so happy that I'm here to watch him. I'm blessed to have a husband that stood by me through all this and still is. I have great friends. I'm back to work. I'm going out all the time. I'm making plans all the time. Again, I just want to live. And that's what I'm doing. But having her life back has also given her a new outlook on life. It's funny how different I am looking at life right now. I look at people differently now. I feel sorry for people now. I want to help people. I want to raise money for cancer. I wish everyone was like that. With Tracy setting the example, maybe more of us can be like that. Helping others just as others helped her in battling cancer. I'll never forget my first appointment with Dr. Mogul. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he told me not to panic. And I remember just having that touch on my shoulder made me feel good. And Dr. George too. I am so glad that we were recommended to them. They have a lot of warmth. They're very kind-hearted. They are awesome. When asked to sum up her HIPEC experience, Tracy uses three words, remarkable, impressive, and incredible. Remarkable that I'm still here. Impressive that the technology is out there to be able to help people like me. And it's incredible that I am where I am today. And where exactly is that? I got my third CAT scan result today and I'm clear. You know, I have no cancer right now as of today. Remarkable, impressive, incredible. Our thanks to Tracy for her bravery and strength in sharing her story with us today. Up next, we focus our CTSI on clinical trials. Let's turn it over to Kayla Pierce. Kayla? Thanks, Brian. Before a clinical trial can begin research involving human subjects, a detailed plan must first be reviewed by an Institutional Review Board, or IRB, under requirements established by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So, what exactly does an IRB look for? For insight, we turn to Dr. Ryan Spellacy, Associate Professor of Bioethics and Medical Humanities and Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at the Medical College of Wisconsin. 
Dr. Spellacy also chairs an institutional review board at MCW. He begins by telling us that the purpose of an institutional review board is providing safety and protection to the participants of a clinical trial. Per federal rules, by and large, any institution specifically that's receiving federal funds has to have this board that reviews the clinical trial to make sure that the research being conducted is ethical and that the safety and rights of the people involved in the research are protected and upheld. Who typically makes up an IRB? There are regulatory requirements. The important ones are that the IRB should have membership that reflects the sorts of research that they are reviewing. What does he mean by membership that reflects the research? If your IRB reviews a lot of cardiovascular research or cancer research, you're required to have people on your board that have expertise in cancer and cardiovascular. So the IRB's standing committee needs people with medical expertise. Expertise. But Dr. Spellacy says there must also be non-scientific people on the committee. We also have to have scientists and what are called non-scientists. But the idea is there you have a balance between both the scientists who know the science and somebody outside of science who will have a different perspective. Because by getting those different perspectives, we have a more balanced review. Anyone else? The other people that we have to have are what's called an unaffiliated member, and that's somebody who neither they nor in their immediate family works for the institution. So then, who are these non-medical IRB members? Lawyers, teachers, basic science researchers, clergy are the sorts of people that are on our IRBs at the medical college. Do members of an IRB serve for a predetermined length of time? The initial term is three years, and then when that three years is up, the director of our human research protection typically confer with the IRB chair and say, hey, Dr. So-and-so, his term is up on the IRB. Do you want me to try to extend his term, or is this somebody that we should let it lapse? Now that we know who are typically members, let's look at the specific role of an IRB. First, does the IRB make the ultimate decision regarding which clinical trials can proceed? Well, that's a complicated question. There's a sense in which we don't because we only review what is pre-selected and comes to us. Now, if they're going to do the research, it's going to go through us. But we don't get to say, hey, there's this interesting trial. We think you ought to do that. That's not our role. And Dr. Spellacy explains that although a clinical trial cannot proceed without IRB approval, even with approval, a clinical trial still may end up not proceeding. It's almost always the case that if we approve a study, it does go forward. But it is possible that a department might choose a study, submit it to the IRB, the IRB approves it, but at a different level in the college, someone might say, yeah, the IRB approved it, but for whatever reason, be it institutional priorities or funding or something like that, we're not going to go forward at this time. Dr. Spellacy stresses that an IRB is independent, so their decision whether or not to approve a clinical trial cannot be overridden. So if we decide to reject a study, no one, no one can tell us, no, you have to approve that. We are independent in that sense, which is very important because, as you might imagine, at times there are important people, powerful people at the college who would like to see their research go forward, and they can't force us to make a decision. Now, we've never had a situation in which someone ever tried that, but the system is set up in such a way that we say, no, this can't go forward. That is final. In determining whether or not a clinical trial may proceed, the IRB must consider potential risks for the participants. So what risks must be considered? Short answer, pretty much all of them. And, of course, the more detailed answer. All research has some level of risk. And what the IRB wants to see is, what steps are you taking to protect against those risks? Typically in a clinical trial, we might think, oh, the risks are side effects from the drugs. 
But there's also psychological risks, there's privacy risks, and the IRB has to consider all of those risks and then weigh it against the potential benefit of the research. We can't have an extremely risky study with little prospect of benefit. Are clinical trials subject to review only before a trial begins? Oh, no. IRBs review a study for the life of the trial. And we have investigators come forward all the time with, we notice this and we want to bring this to the IRB's attention. So day in, day out, they're on the front lines protecting the participants in the research so they monitor it. And there's another layer of review throughout the clinical trial to monitor potential risks based on the data. There's also what we call a data safety monitoring board. That's a group of independent researchers, physicians, looking at the data in the study to protect the safety of the subjects. They have the authority to halt or stop the trial as well, and they look at the data on an ongoing basis. So we know a clinical trial is continually under review. How often does one get reviewed? The IRB has to review every study as it's going at least once a year, but can and does approve studies for shorter time periods, maybe six, maybe nine months. Dr. Spellacy says something else that's reviewed is enrollment of participants in the clinical trial. If a study's coming along and it's not enrolling people, we have to ask the question, well, should this study remain open? Because if they can't get the number they need to statistically answer the scientific question they want to ask, you're putting people at risk, and that changes the risk-benefit ratios. Finally, Dr. Spellacy says there's a key takeaway for everyone to know about the important role an IRB plays in clinical trials. Understand that there is this independent board out there that is looking at the ethics of the research to make sure that research is ethical, people's rights are upheld, and people are protected. And Brian, if listeners want to learn more about clinical trials, they can visit Freighter.com and go to the Cancer Center page or visit the Medical College of Wisconsin Clinical Trials Office website at cto.mcw.edu. And that clinical trials update brings us to an end for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Harvesh Mogul. Dr. Ryan Spellacy, and special thanks to Tracy for sharing her amazing story of courage in successfully beating cancer. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, along with Kayla Pierce, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.